Well, you can go where you want to, and you found your way here to the Safe Toddles podcast. I'm Dr. Grace Ambrosakin, and I'm the inventor of the Safe Toddles pediatric bell cane. This month, I shared the interviews I conducted with three men who were born before the long white cane was invented. First one was Frank. He was born blind in New York in 1915, and at the time of our interview, he was 85 years old. George was born blind in Detroit in 1928 and was 73 when we spoke. The youngest was Alvin, born severely visually impaired in Carbondale, Illinois in 1930. 71 years old. So this podcast will just be a brief summary of the highlights from each of those three interviews. In response to the question, when did you first learn to travel independent of another person? They each described a relationship to getting the long cane. So in other words, prior to getting a long cane, they did not characterize their travel as independent because it was probably mostly dependent on a sighted or partially sighted person. All three were employed, married, and had built a family. They had lives. And as it happens, all three men married women who were partially sighted, their term. And next month, I'm going to share those interviews because I spoke with each of their wives. So let's take a look at what Frank talked about. Born in 1915, he recollected that it was in high school that he started traveling alone. Um, And it was without a long cane because long canes didn't exist yet. So Frank took a subway and a bus to get from his home to the New York Institute for the Blind and back each weekend. He remembered being embarrassed once at age 18 because a random stranger decided he would help. And instead of asking Frank, how can I help you? He simply walked over to him, picked him up and carried him to the shed where you waited for the train. Frank quipped, my eyes are the problem, not my feet. But imagine that's how non-human people or non-person-like people treat people who are blind and especially those who are clearly blind, evidently blind, and in such a precarious state of walking towards subway platforms or downstairs without any way to know that that's what's happening. So it's not like people said, oh, he should be using a long cane because they didn't exist, but they knew it was dangerous. Everyone knew that if a blind person is walking towards stairs, that's a cause for alarm, but not a cause really to do anything more than maybe go over and carry them down the stairs, right? It's like, That's a real issue, right? That we don't really understand how essential long canes are for detecting the lip of the first step down. That's a very important piece of information. So he grew up riding the rails without a long cane, right? And he said, well, without the cane, he had some experiences. He fell into the platform a few times. He said, I just took a step and there wasn't any ground to walk on. Thank goodness there was no train coming in. He wasn't hurt and he had no alternative. He said, I hit them all. I hit the BMT and the IRT, the independent line. Sometimes he said, you know, finding a seat without a cane was a problem because I got stuck in the behind with a hat pin. I went to sit down in what I thought was an empty seat, but wasn't. And she was ready for me. She said, you big animal. And I said, I'm no animal and I'm not that big. Boy, she jabbed me right hard. I was bleeding. Then I figured I better need a cane. And then my wife got after me to use a cane. So here he is 
a working man, commuting to work every day, blind, married, <laughs> you know, a, a proper adult. And he's constantly in jeopardy, not only of falling into a railroad track where trains do speed into the station whenever they please, but also of causing some kind of injury just by misunderstanding. Obviously, the woman who saw this man going to sit on her lap in the 1940s was clearly not having it. So she was going to show him, you can't just sit on my lap uninvited. But he was really unaware. But there was no way for him to demonstrate. That's what white canes do, right? They speak volumes. Hey, I can't see. I have a white cane. That allows people to understand a misunderstanding. So that hat pin story really, you know, and falling into the subway shows that without a long cane, um, it didn't mean that blind people didn't travel but expose them to these really unique and awful situations. And we can't even imagine what that's like. And and so the next interview was with George. Um, And of course, he lived his first 14 years with no cane. The Lions cane was available when he was like three years old, right? So he was born in 28, the Lions Club canes began to be distributed after 1932 so you know technically (laughs) he could they could have sent one on over not that they were much used but for a little tyke maybe although obviously as a person who invented the bell cane I know that it wouldn't have helped but they didn't even try right they didn't even think hey let's figure out a way to make the toddler safe he's blind let's fix that you know he's unsafe trying to walk around no mm -mm, wasn't thought of (laughs) in 1944 people who grew up without anyone caring how much in jeopardy they were moving around they just figured well that's that's life right there's really nothing anyone can do and even when these canes came to four there was no systematic training what's interesting is that george and interpreted the question about independent travel as the time when he started to be taught and encouraged to travel on his own. So listening carefully, he, quote, wanted to get out, end quote, suggesting he had to wait for his parents to go places. And one of the benefits of going to school with other kids who were visually impaired was they could inspire and teach each other to do more, to challenge each other, to say, hey, let's meet up at the dance. And they did. They He also credits his dad, George does, with teaching him important things like memorizing streets. His dad, he said, noticed that the orientation skills of his classmates were not very good because he'd taken a lot of George's friends home that had been over to visit and they couldn't tell his dad what their cross street was. They didn't know. They didn't have the information that he expected children of that age to know about where they lived. So he said, that's not going to happen to you. And they'd go out and George's dad would name every street and they'd go out to a lot of different areas so that he said, I want you to know where you are and what your location is. And he really appreciated that orientation george's dad like most people believed that of the two problems unique to blindness orientation and safe mobility the greater concern was disorientation in fact very little has ever been written or expressed about the need for safe mobility that it should be a goal instead most published works about travel of the blind have insisted that blind people simply have to endure collisions in order to be independent. The truth is that orientation without vision is not as hard as sighted people think it is. 
but being safe when walking independently is much more important and much harder. For example, George got a scholarship to Perkins School for the Blind training course, and part of that work at Perkins included the task of selling mops and brooms and doormats door to door. And George related that to do that, he had to learn the city, Boston. And then later on, he took streetcars all over the city, putting applications to find a job. So, you know, once again, George was born too young for the long cane in grade school, but he was walking around and he got the Lions Club cane when he was 14 years old. And I asked him what it was like traveling without a cane for all those years. And he said, well, I mean, I went to school. I mean, I went to and from school. I didn't need a cane. I was on the school bus. Then in Lansing, we did, we ran around. We were right on the campus and didn't need our canes then. And I think that exchange is important because it explains why he didn't need a cane because he was limited in where he went during the school day and that was really the talking point that's what everyone would say to him right that you don't really you know you're fine and you're in a familiar area you don't need a cane but most accidents occur in familiar areas because that's where we spend all of our time we all have light bulbs in our familiar areas because we don't want to be at risk trying to move around our familiar home in the dark, right? So it's it really makes no sense when you understand that they're human beings who can't see where they're going and that's it. So we need to really understand that, that it, it, they're not bats. They can't move quickly through uh, and neither can you without some way of detecting obstacles. Just that. I mean, it's not, there's nothing wrong with wanting to know that you're about to run into a coffee table, right? Why do blind people have to be treated like it's okay for your shin to run into a coffee table, but it's not okay for my shin because I'm sighted to run into that same coffee table. But then he explains that he wanted a cane for safety, but he didn't never want to admit or discuss any specific incident that resulted from walking without a long cane that caused him to seek one out for safety. Like, why did you feel unsafe? He didn't feel allowed to talk about those incidents. George said that one time he was walking with his wife and the gas company had been putting in new pipes along the road and they crossed the street and his wife had limited vision and she thought that they were pretty clear but instead he stepped down into the hole and he had his good suit on and it was right up to his knees all mud and the gas company had not put any barricades there and people have sued people have fallen into open manholes and now that's why hopefully you will see some kind of strong barrier in front of manholes because anyone can fall into a manhole but especially if you're blind even with a long cane it is something that we will learn more about as if you continue to listen. Georgians like love to travel. They traveled to England and Israel and they enjoyed taking cruises and not to take anything away from him about his travel and his ability to but he grew up knowing that you have to have a sighted person to travel with. And and so he, like Frank and Alvin, all married women who could see something. They all married partially sighted women to be the eyes for people who were blind. In fact, um, his wife indicated that she was born legally blind, which is 2200, and she had a 20-degree field, which isn't great. <laughs> it's pretty narrow. Um, so her vision was definitely impaired. And she said she'd always had problems with down curbs or down a flight of stairs. I always had trouble with that. So when the white cane came along, it was a relief. 
because I didn't have to worry about how deep something was. And then finally I talked to Alvin. He was born with RP, retinitis pigmentosa, on a farm outside Chicago, Illinois. And he got into cane travel in 1946. Before that, he had used everything. Lions Club canes, tree branches, but he'd never really had a safe mobility tool till Hoover came in with the Hoover system, he said. And he thought that was the best thing he'd ever seen. He said, I should have thought of that because as much as I walked with all these various canes, I always had one in my hand. My dad used to cut a cane out of a tree, a little crooked tree limb when I was a kid, and I'd go around. But in 1946, when I was going to college, that's when I got a long cane for safe mobility travel. So again, you know, that's, you're almost 20 years old. You lived your entire life with some makeshift idea that thankfully his stepfather um, saw fit to try to help him out because he saw a need and he came to the conclusion that he had to come up with something. And the reason why he knew that you could use a stick or a, some kind of a branch is because that's how farmers walked around anyway. A lot of people carried staffs because they did a lot of walking um, back then because during the war there was gas shortages and you know, so you had to walk and it was like oh well maybe you could use that at least to keep you upright when you trip over something and who knows if he used it as a pro. Very often it was used as a staff you know so just as a third leg for balance. As a kid on the farm Alvin rode horses, he drove tractors and trucks and ruts in the field and and he helped with the harvesting. And what's really interesting is he went to school to become a rehab counselor to teach newly blind or visually impaired people how to cope with vision loss. And part of his day was teaching orientation and mobility techniques. He talked about how he learned to be an orientation and mobility teacher. And it was basically at the same time that he was learning to use O&M techniques for his own travel needs. And that's something that he said he got a lot out of. By being the teacher, he got to really know and embrace all of the skills that help so much when you're blind. So they got these books, they'd read it. I mean, the O&M curriculum and Long Cane came out in 1945, 46, and the first university programs didn't open up and start training graduate students until 1960s. So really there was, you know, this system was available, but there was no formal way of getting people taught. And agencies had been around for a long time. And so it was just a natural thing that they were going to pick up this new device and see how they could work it in to their instruction. So he was some of the people who invented strategies for bringing it out to their clients. And for example, they had to go do the route that they were going to teach, learn it, you know, memorize it, uh, figure out what, how you're going to know when you get off at the stop and what the sidewalk looked like and you know they'd, they'd spend hours figuring out the route for the client and then they'd go and get the client and teach the client the same route so it was very labor intensive and yet they did it because of the real desire and need for human beings to get out of their house and be independent you know I asked him did you have any close calls <laughs> teaching this and he said yeah you know I think maybe a time or two crossing a street a guy went too slow and uh, they never got hit but I was worried a time or two back in Chicago people turning on them you know you hope they go around them but I was always scared that someone was going to hit them it was a tough system but it showed you the grit and determination to be independent 
Alvin was also an author. He had two daughters, six grandkids. He said, I've done everything there is to do in my career. I used to teach mobility. I was a superintendent of the Illinois Visually Handicapped, the rehab center in Chicago. I've held about every job there is, and I even tried to drive a truck. I used to drive in the field when we were gathering, you know, shuck the corn and put it on the back of the truck. I could drive straight between the rows, and the thing would just bash. And then we'd get to the end, and I tried to turn it around, and everyone would get on the truck because they didn't want to get hit. <laughs> You know, so he built a rich life and they all did and they had families and they were part of their communities. You know, points out that these guys with great resilience and, and how they did it were not entirely sure but they did do it never saying die you know getting out there taking the licks and keep on so what a great january what a great kickoff thank you for listening keep coming back i hope you will. you've been listening to the save toddles podcast to learn more about our mission to provide blind toddlers with a solution for walking independently with safety we can be found through social media our website is safetoddles.org. We're on TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Safe Toddles. And remember, if you can go where you want to, you should do so as independently and safely as possible. Thanks for listening, and please like, share, and let others know we're here. Come find us. This podcast was made available by generous donations from people like you. Just build me from my heart.